Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure, timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are, and how the story of everything really is His story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I'm Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. All right, and we are on with Dr. William Varner. And Dr. Varner, thank you so much for being on the Adventures in Theology podcast today. It is very fun to meet you and talk with you. Well, I must really thank you for this uh, wonderful opportunity. I've heard great things about the uh, podcast, and I'm very thankful that I can be part of it. Ah, wonderful. So uh, instead of me introducing you to the audience, I think it's best for them to hear from you. So why don't you just spend a quick moment sharing a little bit about yourself, maybe, um, you know, what you're up to now, but how you even got there. Okay. Well, I don't know if anybody can notice my accent. Probably not, but I grew up in South Carolina, and uh, I did not grow up in a Christian home. I, I grew up in a home of an alcoholic and a non-Christian mom. And uh, when my father died, suddenly at his age of 41, I began to really think about life uh, uh, and eternal life. And uh, we went to live with my godly Christian grandparents. I started to go to church with them. It was a non-denominational church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And there I heard the gospel and I believe sometime between my junior and senior year of high school. And sometime between my senior graduation uh, and uh, planning to go to Wofford University in the fall, the Lord called me to his ministry. And I believe that very, very clearly. And I enrolled at Bob Jones University and went, spent four years there studying Bible and Greek. And um, then went on to seminary in the Philadelphia area pastored a church for seven years in the Philadelphia area, and uh, then worked with a Jewish mission called the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry uh, for 17 years. And during that time, I got an additional seminary degree and also a Master of, uh, of Arts in Jewish Studies from a Jewish school in Philadelphia. And uh, then I was privileged to get my doctorate from Temple University in Philadelphia. And around 1996, I got a call from Masters University, and they told me that they had a, a, a program overseas called IBEX. That's an acronym for Israel Bible Extension Campus, IBEX. And they needed a director of that and one who could teach in the biblical studies department as well here on in California. And so that's what I've been doing since 1996. I moved cross-country Southern California and teaching at Masters University and directing the um, our campus program in Israel. Just last year, I gave up the uh, directorship of the program in, in Israel because I'm now also chairman of our MA in Biblical Studies. So I've got plenty mm -hmm. to keep me busy. And that's, that's basically a summation of my life. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm sure there are so many details to unpack there if we if we wanted to. That's a story for another time. But wow, what a journey. I mean, it seems like it wasn't the typical when I talk to some academics who it's like, yeah, I got my bachelor's, I got my master's, got my doctor or whatever it may be. Yours seems to be very hands on with the hybrid kind of approach of school and ministry. Is that correct? That's so true, Braden. Uh, I would not mark out my academic path for anyone. I did not receive my doctorate. Till I was 47 years old, I would not recommend that uh, career path for anyone. But I was heavily involved in ministry, pastoral ministry, and also uh, that ministry with the uh, Jewish outreach. Mm -hmm. So really, I was doing most of my master's and doctorate, uh, you might say, while I was in ministry. But while that was a uh, trying time for my family, who survived it remarkably well, uh, it, it yes, it was it was trying at times. I'll put it that way. Yeah, and I mean, most of my audience of people who listen in uh, aren't academics, and so, well, first off, I started reading your book, and it I was I was impressed with how accessible it was because you are someone who has had plenty of years of. Um, academic research and pedigree and also teaching in academic settings. And so usually when I talk to someone who is a scholar like yourself, um, the struggle is for them to either write succinctly in such a way or to write in such a way that the everyday person can actually access because everyone wants to be accessible and all of that. But uh, let's be honest, plenty of people whose lives are saturated in academia when they write, it reflects that. But I was impressed. I, I was reading your book, uh, and I, I'm not through it, um, to be honest, because I only just got access to it. But it's been really good, and I, it's one of those books I actually can recommend to most of my audience, and that feels good. So can you just make a comment about your style of writing? I appreciate that, Braden, so much. Uh, I have about a dozen or more books, uh, a little over half of which are academic, written for an academic audience. But my wife tells me, you know, wives can be very practical. Spouses yep, can be too. very, <laughs> very <laughs> practical. And uh, she said, honey, write a book uh, every now and then for the rest of us. There you go. So uh, this is a book for the rest of us. I do have a book on Elijah and a book on the tribes of Israel. I have a devotional commentary on the Psalms. And those are written for everyday readers. I hope that they have a scholarly basis, but they're written to be read. And uh, this book was written, quote, for the rest of us, to yeah. quote my wife. And I hope it'll, uh, uh, it will be scholarly enough for people to say, hey, he, he's done his research here, but like you said, accessible enough for everybody to benefit from what I'm trying to say. Oh, certainly. I, I think that your research does come through and it does reflect that uh, academic veracity to it and such. But yeah, I mean, and so if you guys are listening in, uh, Dr. Varner wrote a book called Passionate About Passion Week. And the link is down below in the details. So go ahead and check out his book. It's actually, at last I checked, it was number one on Amazon for its current category, which is fantastic. That, that means that it's getting traction right now. And that's exactly what we want to see. And what a perfect time for the book to come out in this season of Lent. And I love how in the introduction, you wrote about how this is one of those publications you actually wanted to write. And because there are times that you're asked to write, let's say, a commentary on James and other writings such as that. But this is one that you longed and earned to publish. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
You said that correctly. Yes, uh, I, I'm working on the details of editing of a technical commentary. Can you believe, Braden, on the Apostolic Father, Second Clement? <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, I'm looking yeah, forward to that... one on First Clement, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not going to have a great readership, but hopefully, you know, some scholars will take notice of it. But again, this is this is written uh, for everyday people. You know, we all go through Lent. We all go through Passion Week. We who are believers in the Lord Jesus, here it comes again, uh, you know, triumphal entry. Yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, I've heard about, heard about the Supper, the Passover. I've heard about crucifixion. What new can be said? Well, I'm not so much trying to say something new, but I am trying to look with new eyes and take a fresh look at these old events and it's because I've taught them so many years. Now, well over 30 years, I've been teaching the life of the Messiah, as I like to call him, mm-hmm. the life of Christ. And I, I think I've got something to say. I, I'm not trying to be new or, or different, just to be different. Uh, but I, I'm trying to uh, uh, just um, Tell people what I think the Bible really says about these precious events. I'm sorry for that noise, Braden. Maybe that adds a little personality to it. But on my iPad, something came up about the coronavirus. So oh, wonderful. <laughs> it beeped a little bit. So uh, it's okay. So, uh, adds authenticity, I guess. It adds authenticity. This is just a real conversation we're having here. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And again, I really can't stress this enough because. I can't tell you how many times I, uh, and I love reading academic works too, but I read the introduction to an academic work and it's like, oh, and this is for the everyday reader. And it really isn't. And <laughs> it, all that does is I think makes it confusing for the audience who's trying to find a book that's actually accessible. And this really is, uh, I love how the chapters are divided. The great titles for the chapters, oh, very catchy. Uh, only a very manageable mouth pages. It's almost like you can read this as a Lent reading. Uh, is, is that part of the goal? It really is, Braden. I'm hoping people will read it either preparing for Passion Week or during Passion yeah. Week. Uh, it goes through a number of the days, uh, the days of triumphal entry, the days of conflict, the days of, of betrayal, crucifixion, resurrection, and beyond. And I and uh, the reader will notice at the end of every chapter, uh, I've ha- I have a suggested prayer. Uh, a prayer that I prayed as a result of that. And um, it's focusing in on the suffering uh, and the work of the Lord Jesus that he did for us during this week. So I really tried to like balance between the academic undergirding of what I'm trying to say. But, you know, the thing is, Braden, you know, these are, these are precious events that can't be over academicized if you want me to uh, make mm-hmm. a verb yeah. there uh you know to you know i, I mean these are uh, events that are the very basis of our christian faith that should be intensely personal to us so you can't just talk in an academic context about the agony in gethsemane uh, and the struggle that our lord jesus had there uh academically it just doesn't cut it you've got to really try to enter into the struggle that Jesus was going through during that time and how he understands our temptation and we can come boldly 
to that throne of grace to find mercy and also find grace to help in our own time of need. Yeah, and you know what? If these are pastors, which they are, worthy of us preaching on every year and revisiting every year, then I really don't see as a concern to have another book on this topic and have it be another fresh approach from your uh, your verbiage, your perspective in light of it. Because like you said, it's not that you're saying something radically new, but you do say it, say it in a fresh way and it is very accessible. And so all those things are to be noted. If, if we're willing to have pastors all around the country and beyond preach on these texts every year, then certainly another book is totally appropriate. So well, I don't think there's anything needing to uh, uh, apologize or anything of that sort <laughs> about publishing on this. Well, Braden, as they say down south, you preach and I'll turn the pages because you said it uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly the way I wanted to say it. You know, uh, Braden, uh, I went through a, a, a bit of a, an emotional struggle uh, giving birth to this book. Mm -hmm. I was about to leave for my 51st trip to Israel, and lo and behold, after, and it's important you hear this, after I checked in at the airport with my wife, and after we went through the gate to get on the plane, can you believe from that gate to that plane, I lost my passport to make a long story short, we searched everywhere, and finally I turned to my dear wife, and I said, honey, get on the plane, I'll join you when I can. And let me tell you, Braden, it was a kick in the gut watching that plane taxi down the runway with 30 people on it and my group and my wife and I'm standing on the tarmac. To make a long story short, I didn't find it, but I had three full days in between that experience on Monday and when I finally got a new passport on Friday and I said, okay, Lord, what am I going to do just feel sorry for myself. So I started writing this book on the Passion Week, and I got about one third of the way through it. I like to say, Braden, that it was therapeutic for me. <laughs> it yeah. was, yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, instead of feeling sorry for myself or saying, woe is me, I just uh, sunk myself into the events of the Passion Week. So it ministered to me first. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. And that's, I think those are the best works uh, when you can tell by the writing that the very person writing it in the hopes to minister to someone else, you can tell it ministered to them first. And that's obviously the case with you. Now let's spend a little bit of time talking about some of the content here. We don't have to give everything away. We want people, yep. to it, but <laughs> let's talk about some of it. And so first of all, Passion Week is probably familiar for most people listening to this. But are there any common considerations about Passion Week that some in the church maybe maybe have simply misunderstood? Are there Let some me uh, think of a couple of things. First of all, the so-called triumphal entry. I'd like to think about that and what I'm trying to do in the book with that. And then I'd like to uh, say something about um, Jesus' cry uh, on the cross, why have you forsaken me, and his cry, it is finished. And theologically, what that means. I mean, this is Adventures in Theology podcast. <laughs> yes. So I'd like to, you know, uh, you know, talk about that. And then I'd like to talk about uh, what's the, the left out thing in the resurrection. And that's the ascension. It's resurrection and ascension. And the, uh, I believe, redemptive and intercessory work that our Savior has done and is doing um, in, uh, in, in the heavenly places for us. Uh, so just those three things, if you, if, if you have time. And first oh, of all, we the, do. let's okay. do it. <laughs> the triumphal entry. Now, you know, it, it's not called that in, in, in the Gospels. It's 
when our Lord went up over the Mount of Olives and sees that amazing view of Jerusalem that's on the cover of the book, uh, and he enters into Jerusalem. Um, one thing I'm trying to do uh, throughout that week is to ground those events in Old Testament Messianic prophecy. We all believe that these things were predicted, but I really try to really explore how Zechariah 9 uh, was fulfilled in the triumphal entry. Whether it took place on Sunday or Monday, and I suggest Monday, I know my wife says, honey, I can't get used to triumphal Monday. <laughs> <laughs> I know I read about that. That was great. <laughs> and uh, I understand that. But whether it's on Sunday or Monday, it was a fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. And what I try to do is look at Zechariah 9 and how Zechariah not only predicts the coming of Jerusalem's king, it predicts the coming, can you believe, of Alexander the Great. It's all portrayed there. And, and then after the, the coming of Alexander the Great into the Middle East and even comes to Jerusalem and spares it. He says, rejoice, your king is coming to you. Not just the uh, Alexandrian Greek king, but, uh, uh, but your king. And uh, very rarely, if ever, have I heard a preacher preach on Alexander the Great on Palm Sunday. But when you do that, you see that not only is Jesus being compared, but in an amazing way, he's being contrasted with mm. Alexander the Great. Because Alexander came to destroy, Jesus came in peace. Yeah, Alexander... Very different methods. Absolutely. And Alexander came on his mighty horse named Bucephalus, and Jesus rode on the donkey. And Alexander brought war, and Jesus brought peace. So I really try... To do that uh, with Psalm 118, where it says uh, in Hebrew, excuse me, Baruch HaHabah B'Shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was fulfilled as well. And mm -hmm. I try to tease that out and show how Psalm 18 has a role all through the Passion Week. And uh, uh, having worked with Jewish people in the Jewish mission for years, I know it's important for them to see that these weren't just accidents that happened to this Galilean preacher. These were programmed from antiquity. And, and he fulfills them not only on that triumphal entry, but all through the week. Yeah, no, that's really good. I love the connection with Alexander the Great, the co comparison and the contrast. That's, that's good. And uh, it definitely shows your... Um, academic journey with understanding the Hebrew Bible uh, because the connections you make don't feel forced at all. They, they, if anything, it shows the light bulb moments. It's like, ah, that's been there all along. Thank you for pointing that out. So I think that the readers will really enjoy drawing those parallels. Well, thank you, Brayden. Uh, you know, another thing is we hear all the time, uh, the, the, the Lord Jesus did say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's really a tough thing that he said that because it talk about theology mm -hmm. how do you have such a disjunct in the trinity between the father and the son that the father would forsake the son well uh here's my suggestion Braden, and you know your hearers can hear it and then uh, you know wrestle with it and see if they agree psalm 22 is a lament psalm it's a psalm where the psalmist is crying out why and how long 
But as in every other lament psalm, if you work through that psalm, you get to what I call a pivot in the psalm where the light comes on and the darkness disappears. And the psalmist starts to see, oh, now I see that you are the one who is calling me to do this. And you see these, oh, well, Psalm 22 is a lament psalm as well. And about halfway through, uh, all of the ugliness of, of, of the animals he describes them being around him and piercing his hand and feet and why has his father allowed this then the light turns starts to turn on and the rest of the psalm is unbelievably positive and i believe that if jesus evoked psalm 22 1 uh, he was evoking the whole psalm we often say brayton and i know you believe this that yes. don't take a text out of its context. Well, if that psalm was fulfilled in the crucifixion and all believers uh, affirm that, halfway through the psalm, he turns positive. And he even says, now I know that you've heard me. So, so the father didn't forsake the son. Uh, uh, in Hebrews chapter two, we have a wonderful statement from the latter part of Psalm 22 that actually says, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Boy, it's so positive. So, so I would say that Jesus is identifying with the lamenting psalmist and struggling in his humanity with the apparent forsakenness of the Father. But he ends, doesn't he, with wonderful statements like, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the statement to the, to the bandit, the, the criminal on the cross today, you'll be with me in paradise. And the wonderful statement, it is finished. These positive statements really are indication uh, that the father didn't forsake the son, but in his hum humanity, he's struggling with that, but he works through it just like the uh, Davidic psalmist work through Psalm 22 as well. Wow, yeah, that, that is a really helpful way of explaining it. Um, and one of the things I like about that is I think that the, the heart of God the Father gets misunderstood in some mm. sense at mm. the cross. And so can you help, uh, in light of that explanation, I think there's something to be said about how we can help reframe the character of God the Father by understanding it that way. Well, the Father's heart is breaking. It, 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 this is his son. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not trying to make this into a mechanical relationship. I mean, uh, Jesus' heart is bursting. Uh, and the Father's heart, uh, as he sees his son going through this and knowing that he's, uh, this is from the foundation of the world, uh, uh, of course. But this was the, the Father's plan that this son would come and, and, and die. Uh, Isaiah 53 programs it. Psalm 22 programs it. it it's over and over. But when Jesus comes to the, towards the end, it's not the last saying on the cross. When he says that, and, uh, and all of my readers who know something about Greek, and some of them who don't even know, will recognize tetelestai uh, in John 19.30. Uh, yeah. It is finished. And, and, and I realize, and believe me, Braden, I'm a believer in the atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ and the necessity of the shed blood. Absolutely beyond the shadow of a doubt, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm convinced that he's not saying there, Braden, and this might be a bit of a controversy and new for, for the listeners, but stay with me here. Uh, 
in, in that context of John 19.30, he's already used tetelestai two verses earlier when Jesus saw that all had been finished, all had been accomplished. He cries out, I thirst, again from Psalm 22. So, so it's in the context of the fulfillment of messianic prophecies of the suffering of the Messiah. So when he says it is finished, I'm convinced, Braden, that it's not atonement that it's finished. Uh, because the atonement will continue uh, even after his death as he appears in heaven. But he's talking about the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies, like Psalm 22, like Isaiah 53. And so uh, Paul uses the same verb, teleo, in Acts 13, 22, when he says, when they had finished, same verb, all things uh, about him, they took him down from the cross and buried him. So the same verb is used in Acts 13 as, as in John 19, 28 and 30. So what Jesus, I believe, Braden, is saying is all the prophecies about my suffering have been finished, have been fulfilled. That might be the one thing that people really have to wrestle in their mind about, but I do think it's biblical. Oh, absolutely. In fact, with me, that doesn't raise any red flags at all. I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, of course. Have people read Hebrews 8 through 10? Like, that, wow. that's exactly where I'm thinking is, you know, this, uh, and I'm, man, Hebrews, there's still a lot of work I need to do in getting my head around this. But the fact that the Messiah had to make this heavenly propitiation, a little bit yes. of a tangent here, but is that part of the connection you're drawing? It really is, because if some people say, well, if it's not finished, when will it be finished? Right. Well, you said it, Braden. Uh, Hebrews is all about not just the death of our Savior, but his going to the presence of the Father, entering into the holy places in, in heaven and effecting redemption for us. Hebrews 9 12 says that. And again, people will never see this unless they read Hebrews and they understand the work of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where the priest, the high priest, killed an animal on the sacrifice, on the sacrificial altar, but didn't leave it there, took the blood inside the Holy of Holies, where he applied it to what is in Hebrew called the Kippurit, or we call it the mercy seat. Mm -hmm. And there is where atonement was made. Leviticus 16 says it. That's where atonement was made. Hebrews 8 through 10 says atonement was made. When he entered into the heavenly places, he secured redemption for us. So it's a both and, not an either or. There you go. That, yeah. uh, that, uh, that uh, absolutely, uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Of course but that blood on the day of atonement was taken in the Holy of Holies. Jesus ascended. And, uh, and, and, and Brayden, I'm not really saying that it's the physical blood that he physically applied to a physical Holy of Holies in heaven. I don't think that's necessity, but he applied the benefits of his shedding of the blood when he appeared before his father in heaven. And that's when he sat down. Yeah. That's when he sat down, Psalm 110, uh, and, and is ministering as our great high priest in the Holy of Holies for us. 
I think people forget that the heavenly tabernacle is the true tabernacle and the tabernacle on earth was the microcosm of the, the real thing. And so that's why the, uh, the work in heaven is so essential for the so well passion narrative. So well put, uh, you know, I started to say, Paul, I'm not going to argue as <laughs> who wrote Hebrews here. That's another issue. Yeah. But, but yeah, the original is in heaven. It, it's the copy that was on earth. And, and, and the copy on, on earth and the tabernacle temple is, is really a reflection of the heavenly realities of the heavenly temple. We have, you know, it, it's a sermon, Brian, uh, uh, excuse me, Braden. I'm, I, I'm, I'm convinced it is. It's a sermon, Paul. Oh, watch out. Uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews says uh, it's a word of exhortation. But when he in the middle of it and Braden, you preached and, and some of our hearers are preaching preachers and they know about the middle of the sermon they'll say now guys this is what i've said thus far are you following me in hebrews 8 1 he says that now the main point of what i'm saying is what we have a high priest who has passed into the heavens jesus the son of god that's the message of the book of hebrews yeah no really good and so another thing i like about your book well i already started to mention this but the fact is that you're really well trained with the Hebrew Bible and Jewish literature, and you, you put it out in such a fluid way that it's not difficult to read and put a grasp on. And now, one of the things I love about Passion Week is how it draws together some of the days of the liturgical calendar. I mean, you have notes of Passover and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and such. Are there any other parts of the Jewish liturgical calendar that come together in the Passion Week? Well, I'm very thankful that this year, Braden, in 2020, Passover and Easter week or Passion Week come together <laughs> like it was uh, in 30 AD. Mm -hmm. um, it was Passover evening, uh, the first night of Passover on Thursday night. I do believe it's Thursday night. I hold strongly to a Friday crucifixion. Mm -hmm. So, so it, it, he, he is observing Pesach or Passover with the disciples. And he points to the lamb, and that lamb, he becomes the Passover. He's observing the Passover, but he becomes uh, the uh, Passover lamb. And that's why the Apostle Paul said, Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us in First yes. Corinthians. So, so yeah, it, 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 it's come together. Um, there's something else that, you know, I don't think I mentioned this in the book. Wow, now I've got to write a second edition. Um, <laughs> On, on Sunday, the Sunday after the Passover Sabbath is the Festival of First Fruits. So amazing that on the Festival of First Fruits, the Sunday after the Passover Sabbath, uh, who should become the first fruits but the Lord Jesus? And, and Paul uses that term. He's become the yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's become the first fruits of them that slept. So on the day of first fruits on Sunday, when the high priest is waving the sheep as the first fruits of the harvest, Jesus actually becomes the first fruits of all of us who will be raised from the dead in the final harvest. That's a great connection. I don't think I've ever spelled it out like that before either, but that's so true. And that makes sense of, in the book of Revelation, Jesus, one of his titles for himself is uh, he calls himself the firstborn of the dead. Amen. Amen. And that's what he's definitely drawing on. Yeah, I, I tell you, it, the more I study Jewish culture, the more I see there's um, great uh, application for 
Christian truth. And of course, my heart is also for our Jewish friends. Uh, you know, I, if they could read some things like this, perhaps they could also see that their Passover, uh, you, you know, on the Passover table today, it's just a, it's just a shank bone. They don't have an actual lamb. Uh, well, we have the Passover lamb who is mm-hmm. sacrificed for us. That's really good. And uh, yeah, I, I guess the next thing I want to ask you about is, you know, I guess, um, you know, in light of there being so much Jewish background to the Gospels and obviously the whole Christian heritage even, but uh, do you suggest that Christians um, participate in some sort of Passover um, to get a better feel of what that meant? Or do you even recommend that it's something that we understand along with our Christian liturgy of uh, as we celebrate Lent and as we celebrate Good Friday and such? Should we bring Passover more into what we've done instead of completely separating it? I think we do. You know, now I go to a church where there's thousands and thousands of people there on 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 a Sunday morning when we have communion. I realize <laughs> that with serving communion to thousands of people, it's going to be a small wafer. I realize that. But but it was a meal, you know, uh it was matzah. Uh it 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 was a whole meal. Uh, and uh what I often I'm invited to give a Passover demonstration. Uh, this Passover week, in a few weeks, I'm actually observing a Passover meal with the entire meal with a group of ladies in a Bible study on Tuesday evening. Then the following Friday evening, on our Good Friday, I'm giving a Passover demonstration at a church uh, right north uh, of uh, Santa Clarita, where I have all of the elements on the table in front of the congregation, and I go through and I explain them. One is a Passover meal, and not everybody can be able to do that, but if you ever hear of a Passover demonstration, uh, go and you'll see how Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Yeah, no, I've been part of a, a few Passovers, and it, they've They've been incredible, and it really has been eye-opening to understanding the work of the cross, again, with that Jewish background uh, as the events unfolded. And so um, as we start to kind of bring this to a close for today, uh, well, obviously, you guys need to buy the book. <laughs> you guys need to read through this. This is great. Support Dr. Varner, but also it's going gonna, it's gonna to greatly enrich your understanding of Passion Week. Um, it, I guess if there's one more nugget of wisdom you want to share from it, maybe uh, something that you thought lightly of, but now you treasure a lot more about Passion Week in light of your research, what would that be? Well, it, does, it didn't take place on those eight days, but it's connected to it. Okay. Uh, 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 the Ascension, the Ascension. Yes. I, I think we overlooked that. Uh, I'm a Baptist independent. We don't celebrate the day of the ascension like some of my liturgical friends do but i tell you we should not neglect the ascension because it's it's one package package and in our creeds we say that the apostles creed the nicene creed it's always he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven i think meditating and learning more about the ascension and the results of the ascension in the book of hebrews is really something that the average Bible believer, independent church, uh, non-liturgical 
church really needs to understand more. And everybody says, well, I believe in the ascension, but what does that mean? And uh, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. So what's he doing now? Mm. I, I think in our evangelical churches, we do preach a lot about what Jesus did. And we do occasionally in, in, in prophecy preach about what Jesus will do. But look at the end of Hebrews 9 and see what Jesus is doing right now. He's applying the benefits of that redemption to us right now so we can come boldly to the throne of grace right now. That's what Jesus is doing right now. Yeah, and I mean, uh, even in Romans 8, we get that theme of Jesus still being our intercessor, our advocate. And so it clearly is important. Without the ascension, we don't have uh, a, a, a viable conclusion to what the events of the gospel are, especially in light of having a second coming and waiting for a second coming doesn't make any sense without understanding the ascension. So I Absolutely. couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, well, oh my gosh, this has been really enriching for me even i i'm excited just to continue to dig into it i had i interviewed you before i even finished the book i broke my own rule. <laughs> oh i apologize but you know my intent it's because it's about passionate or passion week and i wanted to make sure that we get this uh, out to the audience well right now i want to tell you something that might encourage you yeah i have not received my copies of the book yet that's oh. how new it is that's <laughs> so i yeah. I did download myself a Kindle copy, but I don't have physical copies yet. They don't arrive until Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing the digital version too. Uh, yeah, which of course I prefer a physical book too. But yeah, I'll have the link down below, everyone. Uh, be sure to check it out and stay connected with uh, Dr. Varner. Is there any way that the audience can stay connected with you? Is there a page or somewhere they can find you on? Well, you know, you can find me on the, uh, I, I do, I'm on Facebook. I've mm -hmm. got about three or 4,000 friends on Facebook. I have a, 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 a for, uh, for those who know some Greek or Hebrew, I have a, a Facebook page called Nerdy Language Majors. And I'm on that got, page. Okay, and it's got over 6,300 members. But if you would pray for something that I just heard about, this is so contemporary. Uh, some of you have heard about the rapper who has had a faith experience, uh, Kanye West. Uh, you know, I'm giving a, a copy of the book to Kanye. We want him to grow. We want him to be solid in his faith. I don't want to enter into all the issues related to is he genuine or not. I, I have a pastor friend who's working with him on a weekly basis. If my hearers could pray for Kanye yeah. as he reads this book, that he'll become solid in his faith. Wonderful. Absolutely. We'll join you in that. So again, thank you so much, Dr. Varner. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and everyone else. We'll see you next time on Adventures in Theology.